The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. It is a great delight to be able to be here this morning as I was thinking through what I would say and what uh, text we would preach from. I remembered that I preached twice as an intern here uh, on a Wednesday evening, but never have I had the privilege of being with you on a Sunday morning. And so I am humbled, I am a little overwhelmed, and will let the Lord uh, by his Holy Spirit speak to us from his word this morning. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer and ask for his blessing as we open his word. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for the opportunity to be together this morning, to be gathered in your house. And Father, here I am as your servant, and here we are as your people. We ask, Father, that you would rend the heavens once again, and that you would come down, that you would visit us, your people, and that you would take the reading and the proclaiming of your word and that you would drive it home even as nails into our hearts and souls and minds and bodies. And that you, Father, would be honored. That you would be praised. And that we, Father, would be convicted. That we, Father, would be encouraged. And that you, Father, might receive all the glory and all the praise, in all, and through all, and to all. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to John and his Gospel, the very last chapter of John, John chapter 21. And I'll read the first 19 verses of John 21. So on page 907 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those this morning, page 907. John 21, this is God's word. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple, whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire 
in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, <clears throat> he said to him, Follow me. Amen. This account in John chapter 21 is the third time that Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection. You'll remember the account of the Gospels, and you'll know the very first time that Jesus appeared to his disciples was on the very evening of the resurrection itself. On that very evening, in, the upper, in this room that was locked, Jesus appears in the midst of his disciples for the first time. All of the disciples were there except for Thomas. Thomas was not there. Eight days later, Jesus again meets in what appears to be the same room. It was locked again, and Jesus appears in their midst and says, Peace be with you. And this time, on the second post-resurrection appearance, Thomas is there. This account in John 21 is now the third time that Jesus meets with his disciples after the resurrection. And the text tells us that Peter along with the sons of Zebedee and others, decide to go fishing. Now, we don't know why Peter decides to go fishing. The text does not explicitly tell us. It's possible that Peter was hungry, and he had had far too much bread and water, and he just hungered for some fish. That's certainly possible. It's also possible that Peter needed to pass some time between the resurrection and the ascension, these days when uh, soon after the ascension the Holy Spirit would come. And so what better way for Peter to spend time than to be fishing? As I was telling Mark Wyndham this morning, maybe 
Maybe Peter knew that a bad day on the water was far better than a good day in the office, right? We don't know. But I happen to think, for several reasons, that something more is going on here in John 21 than just that Peter wanted fish or just that Peter loved fishing and now had a chance to return to fishing. And I say that, for again, for three main reasons. First, as far as the text reads, as far as we know in the Gospel accounts, this is the first time that Peter goes fishing since being called to leave his nets behind and to follow after Christ. The first time that we're told in the Gospel accounts that Peter returns to fishing. Why here? Why now? Second, the Peter of verse 7. The Peter of John 21.7 that not only gets dressed to swim or gets dressed in order to jump into the water, but jumps into the water to swim to Jesus when he realizes that it's the Lord standing on the shore rather than pulling his boat up to it. That Peter that is impetuous, that Peter who speaks or who acts long before he seems to think, that Peter is the Peter that we know and love. So many of us. And yet, where is that Peter on the first two post-resurrection appearances? There's no hint of that impetuosity. Peter seems to be cowering in a corner. Peter seems to be reserved and a different Peter. There's something changed about Peter. There's no impetuosity. There's no hint of that anywhere in the first or second meeting that Jesus has with his disciples after the resurrection. Why? Why does Peter act in a non-Peter-like way on the first two post-resurrection appearances and not here where he throws himself into the water to get to Jesus? That's the Peter we know and love. Third, there is a deafening silence in the gospel accounts. Jesus meets with Peter on the evening of the resurrection. Peter has just denied knowing Christ three times, and the rooster has crowed, and he's been, he was grieved and broken over it. We know that when the angel met with the women after, uh, on the day of resurrection, that morning after Jesus had been raised, on that morning when Mary and Mary and the others go to the tomb, and the angel greets them, he says, Go and tell my disciples. And Peter... that I am not here, but will see them again just as I have told them. Given that reality, Jesus meets in that room with his disciples, and Peter's there, only Thomas isn't, Peter's there, and yet Jesus says nothing to Peter. Peter's just denied knowing him three times. And Jesus is there, and there's no hint in the gospel accounts that Jesus says anything at all to Peter. It's the elephant in the room. And Jesus doesn't deal with it. He not only doesn't deal with it once, the first post-resurrection meeting, Jesus doesn't deal with it twice. The first two resurrections, there's no hint 
anywhere in the gospel accounts that Jesus says anything to Peter at all. Isn't that interesting? Why? Thomas misses the first meeting. Thomas is not there for the first. You remember that evening of the resurrection. And Thomas says, unless I see with my own eyes and unless I can put my hand in the hole in his, finger, in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. And that the very next week, if you will, eight days later, when Jesus meets again with his disciples and Thomas is there, Jesus deals with Thomas's unbelief right away. He doesn't wait to deal with Thomas's unbelief. But he does wait with Peter. Why? You see, for all of these reasons, I think there's something more going on when Peter announces he's going fishing here in John 21. There's been two times he's met with Jesus. He's not going fishing because he's discouraged that the one he's been giving his life to for three years has died. You see, he's already been raised. And not only has he been raised, but Jesus has, or Peter, excuse me, has seen Jesus twice. Could it be that part of the reason why Peter, or maybe it's all of the reason why Peter decides to go fishing on this occasion is because Jesus has met with him twice already and said nothing about his failure. There's been no, there, there, Peter, it's okay. There, there, Peter, I just died for your sins of denying knowing me three times before the rooster crows. There, there, Peter, I accept you and love you still. Don't you know Peter was longing to hear those words and there's no evidence of anything that is spoken to Peter on the first two meetings. Could it be that Peter was overwhelmed with guilt and shame and was, if you will, returning to the only thing that he really knew? Before Jesus called him to serve him, he was a fisherman, and so he returned to what he knew. Could that be what was driving Peter? Could it be the silence of Jesus As Jesus seems to pass him by, he deals with Thomas, but he doesn't deal with Peter. I think, probably, Peter was close to discouragement, no doubt he was discouraged, close to perhaps giving up. And I wonder this morning if any of you, any of us, are there. Overcome, possibly with guilt and shame, for some failure, Tempted to discouragement and maybe even despair. I wonder if Jesus has been silent in your life. All the while he's been dealing with the Thomases of the world. He's been passing you by. You see, these are very real realities. We know what it is to experience guilt and shame. You see, every one of us in this room, including including, and maybe even especially myself, we are sinners. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not done the things that we ought to have done. We've not 
thought the thoughts that we ought to have thought. We've not said the things that we ought to have said. We've left undone many things that we ought to have done. We've left unthought many thoughts that we ought to have thought. We've left unsaid many things that we ought to have said. We know shame and we know guilt. And sometimes that shame and guilt can be almost debilitating. And if that's where you are this morning, then know that Peter was there first. That you're not in uncharted waters. Maybe Jesus has been silent. There are times where we do not understand what God is doing. This year, as I, we were talking with friends over the weekend, this year has been a year of incredible sadness and incredible loss. In my life, my wife's life, and many of yours I know as well. The older I get, the more challenging I see that life really is. We take it for granted when we're younger. Um, it can seem like God is passing us by. He's silent, and he's dealing with the Thomases of the world. You see, wherever you are this morning, in any of those ways, John and what, what John 21 says speaks to you. Jesus is dealing with Peter. And I want to suggest to you, this is the restoration of Peter. This is the time, the occasion in the life and ministry of Jesus when he restores Peter after Peter's great failure. He didn't do it on the first meeting. He didn't do it on the second meeting. I want to suggest to you this is exactly what Jesus is doing here in John 21. And he's doing it in a way that Peter will not only know, uh, know restoration intellectually, but he's doing it in a way that Peter will know restoration experientially. Jesus is going to restore Peter in a way that Peter will feel down to his bones. And there's a lesson for us. There's a reason for that as we move forward, and we'll hopefully make that plain. If you're looking in your Bibles, there are three things I want to look at in terms of what Jesus seems to be doing in John 21. The first is that Jesus seems to be preparing Peter, preparing him for the restoration. And so the first thing we'll look at is the preparation that Jesus seems to allow. The preparation that Jesus seems to allow here. The, it's the elephant in the room, the silence, the fact that Jesus doesn't deal with Peter on the first two post-resurrection meetings with his disciples is the elephant in the room. Why would the God of the universe, who is altogether loving and gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Why would he not deal with Peter's sin at the soonest opportunity? Why would he wait until the third post-resurrection meeting? Why would he not do, deal with Peter right away? It seems unloving. It seems out of character for the God of the universe. It seems unkind, harsh. For Jesus to be in the same room with Peter, not just once, but twice, and not deal with Peter's sin. We know, obviously, from the testimony of Scripture, 
that our God is not harsh, that he is not capricious, that he is not unkind. But as we said, he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We know that he is love. The Bible tells us, as my, one of my New Testament professors at RTS here in Jackson, a man that you all, or many of you will have known, Knox Chamblin. Knox Chamblin used to say to us all the time as students, God is always as drastic as necessary and yet as gentle as possible. He's always as drastic as he has to be and yet as gentle as he can be in our lives. So given that reality and given what the Bible tells us about the character of our God, we know that whatever is going on here in John 21, whatever the reason is for Jesus not dealing with Peter on the first meeting or the second meeting and waiting until the third occasion, whatever the reason is seems to be because the time was not right. The time was not right for Jesus to deal with Peter on the first occasion or on the second occasion. The time was right only here on the third occasion. Maybe, maybe, Peter had pushed that sin down deep within. We all do it. We don't even want to think about it. We just put it out of sight. We cover it down. We stuff it so that we can put one foot in front of the other and we can move on in life and not have to deal with the the guilt and the shame. Maybe that's where Peter was. And so Jesus knew that that sin had to be brought to the surface because Peter had stuffed it. And it needed to be brought up to the surface again so that it could be healed. A few months ago, we went on spring break to the beach in Tampa, where my family lives just outside Tampa. And we uh, were there for spring break. It was red tide. There were fish all over the beach, dead fish, unfortunately. And I don't know whether these were bones of a fish, skeleton, or what it was, but there were three or four sharp, thorny barbs that happened providentially to be turned at the right angle in the sand. When I took a step, they went right into my heel. We pulled them out, turned my heel over. There's these barbs sticking out of my heel. So I pulled them out, and we washed it, put bandages on it. We thought everything was fine. About two weeks later, guess what? My heel hurt. My wife had to take some tweezers and kind of dig and pull out what she could see. We thought we got everything, but guess what? Two weeks later, my heel hurt again. My wife had to go, go to do her surgery on my foot again and pull out pieces of the whatever it was in my foot. And guess what? That happened about three or four times. I'm happy to say I think we've got everything out of my heel But the point is that what is in sometimes needs to be brought to the surface before it can be dealt with. And maybe that's what Jesus is doing here. Maybe Jesus knew that this sin in Peter needed time. And so he couldn't deal with it on the first occasion. He couldn't deal with it on the second. It had to be brought to the surface. So often, that's the way God is. When he's silent, he is not inactive. When he's silent... He is not inactive. God may tarry, but he never delays. And we need to be reminded that God's timing is right. And so it seems as though he's allowing this time, this preparation to get Peter ready for the restoration that will come. And then I want you to see the second thing. 
Because it's not only that Jesus seems to allow preparation, but he also brings conviction. And he brings conviction in a way that Peter feels. Did you notice some of the parallels in John 21 as I was reading it? Verse 4, it was just as day was breaking. We don't know if the rooster had crowed or not, but it was certainly about that time. About the time of day in which he had denied knowing Christ. Verse 9, there's a charcoal fire. This word in the Greek is only one word. And guess how many times it occurs in the New Testament? It occurs twice. The only other place it occurs is in John 18. When around a charcoal fire, Peter is asked three times, Sir, do you know the man? And three times around a charcoal fire, before the rooster crows, early in the morning, he denies knowing him. Jesus, here at the break of day, around a charcoal fire, puts Peter three new questions and forces Peter to answer three new questions around a charcoal fire, and there's no doubt as to what's going on here. Jesus seems to be recreating the scene of Peter's failure. He's confronting Peter, if you will. He's bringing new and fresh conviction of sin, reminding Peter experientially of the exact way in which he had fallen. And I think the text makes plain that Peter knew it because in verse 17, we're told that Peter was grieved when Jesus said to him the third time, do you love me? The NIV translates that hurt. Peter was hurt. Peter seems to have gotten the point. The conviction found its place. It took hold of where Peter was and where Peter was coming from. Jesus seems to allow time to go by and then he confronts Peter and he deals with Peter in a way that doesn't just dismiss Peter's sin. No, rather it heightens it. Peter, um, Jesus brings Peter to a greater, a deeper level of conviction in a way that would have been more than just intellectual. It would have been experiential as well. And then thirdly and finally, we see not only the preparation that Jesus allows and the conviction that Jesus brings, but the restoration that Jesus offers. Because Jesus doesn't merely recreate the scene of Peter's failure. He also recreates the scene of Peter's calling. Did you hear the connecting language? It's early in the morning, and they had gone fishing. It was Simon, and it was the sons of Zebedee. The very last time that Simon and the sons of Zebedee had been fishing was in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus calls them to leave behind their nets and follow after Christ. And if you look at Luke chapter 5, if you have your Bibles handy, I'd invite you to turn over to Luke 5. We'll read just a few portions, little few verses from Luke 5. And then make the connections back here to John 21. Text reads in Luke 5, beginning in verse 1, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, significantly, 
He asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Verse 10 tells us the sons of Zebedee were there. James and John were with him. And so the connection here in verse 21 seems to be very similar. They go fishing, Simon and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And after fishing all night, we're told in verse 3, and catching nothing, Jesus appears and says, Cast your nets on the other side and you will catch fish. They do. And they catch so many fish, they were not able, verse 6, they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. You see, Jesus comes to Peter and not only recreates the scene of his failure, but Jesus comes and recreates the scene of his calling. It's It's as though Jesus wants to tell Peter, Peter, I know what you've done. Follow me, Peter. Your sin does not change that. Follow me, Peter. When I was much younger, about 21 years ago, would have been in this church, I was in a Bible study, no doubt, and learned years ago, years before I went to seminary, my very first definition I learned ever of justification Justification, that great doctrine by which we find acceptance in the sight of the Lord by faith and by faith in Christ alone. I learned the definition, you've heard this no doubt before, that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. Well, I now know that justification means more than that. But it certainly doesn't mean less. And here, this seems to be exactly what Jesus is saying to Peter experientially in recreating the scene of his his calling. He's saying, Peter, it's just as if you'd never sinned. Peter, I'll wipe this sin away. I just died, Peter, right? Don't get hung up on your failure, Peter. Follow me. It's as if he's saying, this is a second calling. We're going to start over, Peter, at the very beginning. Follow me. We'll wipe the slate clean. I'll put your failure as far from me as the east is from the west. Peter, follow me. So with an experiential reminder of his sin, an experiential reminder recreating the scene so that Peter had to live through his conviction, he had to live through his second calling, if you will, Jesus seems to be giving Peter a heightened awareness of his sin and a heightened awareness of forgiveness. You know, many figures in church history have had that kind of a heightened awareness of sin and a heightened awareness of forgiveness. I think of Martin Luther. I think of Robert Murray McShane. I think of the Apostle Paul who called himself the foremost of sinners. Samuel Rutherford, John 
Bunyan, John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a great guy like me. So many men and women that God has used through time have had a heightened awareness of their sin and therefore a heightened awareness of all that Jesus had done for them. It is no coincidence that just a handful of weeks after this occasion in John 21, Peter will preach two sermons and at least 5,000 people will become Christians. At least 5,000 people will put their faith in Christ, and maybe as many as 10,000. Two sermons. There is no doubt that part of what Jesus is doing in waiting to restore Peter, and then restoring Peter in this experiential way, that he doesn't just dismiss Peter's sin, but raises it, heightens it, and then gives him this heightened experiential awareness of all that he has done in this call to follow him again, seems to be preparing Peter so that he might be more useful in the kingdom and be used of the Lord. And 5,000, at least, come to faith in Christ as a result of Peter's life and ministry. I don't know where you are this morning, but I'll say wherever you are, know that the way our God operates is not to dismiss or make light of your sin and your shame and your guilt. Rather, he so often heightens it and brings conviction so that he might also bring a heightened awareness of what he has done in wiping the slate clean, in remembering our sins no more, and putting them as far from him as the east is from the west, so that it might be just as if we'd never sinned. And he does that so that we might be useful. You and I may never preach two sermons and 5,000 people come to faith But we may live a Christian life, we may speak to our neighbors, we may do something at the water cooler or the coffee pot at the office, whatever it may be, a conversation or an action, a good deed that we do, and the Lord uses that to change one life. Usefulness is what God's after. Not your comfort, not mine. Let's remember that whether it's guilt and shame that's overcoming us or whether it's the silence of the Lord in our lives. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for your word. Write its truths upon our hearts, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. You have been listening to a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. Our contact is www.f.com. PCJackson.org.